Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is episode number 123 of the Gate World Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Diana. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. Diana Botsford is joining us once again this week. Darren is taking the week off. He should be back uh, this coming week to talk about the uh, next Stargate Universe episode, Common Descent. But tonight, this is uh, episode The Hunt from SGU that we're going to be discussing, written by Joseph Malazzi and Paul Molly. Diana, uh, we are glad to have you back. Somber news today from Creation Vancouver. Brad Wright announced that uh, SGU uh, is completely has been completely shelved, as well as the movies that were uh, in development. Your thoughts, please, dear. Well, I mean, number one is I know there's a lot of folks right now that feel like the franchise is dead. I totally disagree the franchise is not dead it's just going to take a nap that's okay. how i feel i compare it's gonna lay for a while exactly and i think that's a good thing i think that going away for a couple of years maybe bring in some fresh blood don't get me wrong i think brad wright was a tremendous force for stargate an amazing writer that's why the show's been on the air for 17 seasons indeed and and i cannot wait to see what he writes next he's saying that he's going to start working on some other things i hope he does something original i hope he yeah. writes some future films i yeah. will see anything brad Wright yeah. he himself yeah. writes i will too i immensely admire the man's abilities but there is such a thing as a need for fresh blood yeah. You know, look, let's look at what happened with the Star Trek franchise. Yeah. Okay. Fresh blood really has helped that show on several cycles. Yeah. So You're in the right. meantime, in the meantime, the franchise will continue through the fans, through the novels, through the merchandising, through pulling out those DVD sets, mm-hmm. through downloading through iTunes, and it will continue. Absolutely, will continue. There's a lot of great stories ahead coming out in Stargate Atlantis novels and SG-1 novels and who else knows what's going to come out just people have to have more faith in the franchise if you were if you were attracted to this franchise in the first place wouldn't you have some faith in it nonetheless though i'm extremely disappointed about SGU because that was a story that i wanted to see told very badly i wanted to know what was going on and what it was all about and i think it could have been amazing and we're not going to know now you know, I mean, we may we may have the story told to us in a couple of news articles, or if we're lucky, if we're lucky, Brad will write a series of novels. But I don't see how anything else. I mean, I mean, they're not proceeding forward with it. So, yeah. honestly, I think the best thing that Brad Wright could do right now is go and create something new and yeah. original. Yeah. And I will be first online to buy a ticket to it. Quite yeah. frankly, I think that would be the healthiest thing for him. And the franchise at this point. You know, I mean, listen, I mean, one of the fun things about this genre, about the speculative genre, is that it engages the, the viewer, the fan, in a way that most other genres can't. So, okay, mm-hmm. we're not going to see the end of Stargate Universe, mm-hmm. but it, you'll continue to speculate about it. Mm-hmm. And that can be kind of fun. 
Uh, let's uh, get into the hunt. The main discussion. The hunt is episode two sixteen of Stargate Universe, the 16th episode of Season 2, and predominantly featured actors Mike Dopood as uh, Varro. Uh, We also had uh, Jamil Walker-Smith take a prominent role as uh, Greer as well. I don't have a tremendous amount to say about this episode. This episode is kind of... It reminded me a lot of Tracker from Season 5 of Atlantis, especially because Mike Dopood was out there running around, you know, except there was no Jennifer Keller really this time. I don't know. Diana, you start. What, what, what did you think about this show? This sh- it's not just uh, hunting for Tamara and Reynolds. There's also a B-plot aboard the episode of um, stasis chambers being found as well. So this episode actually does manage to introduce uh, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were definitely little beats uh, in both the A-plot and the B-plot that I enjoyed, and even the C-plot with Volker's Oh, Volker, and, yeah. Jennifer. You know. That was quite poignant. In fact, I would say I like that plot the best. I found it, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, romance has its place. It's just, uh, I, I don't have to have it. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think that the, the actor who plays Volker is so terrific, Patrick Gilmore, that I caught every little nuance of his character arc mm-hmm. throughout the episode and really enjoyed it. I mean, there, there are moments in the A plot I found interesting. I found it fascinating why Greer I don't feel like we ever got a, a satisfying answer as to why Greer held back from shooting no no that, that was one of my issues with the episode as well they, they go into it a little bit with Vanessa James's character where he sits down with her and says you know while I was drugged I thought I had died you know there was this this void and so for some reason it's causing him to be indecisive uh, and that's the answer that they give us. He's being indecisive because ever since the surgery, he's not had his crap together. Yeah. You know? And, and he doesn't the, have his mojo back. His mojo back. Yeah. Said. And that's, yes. you know, it's kind of like Teal'c after he loses his symbiote. You know, it's that exactly. kind of similar thread. And, I mean, that's the answer that they give us. That's the answer that they say, okay, this is this is what we're giving you. Believe this. I was kind of, yeah, I, I kind of took issue with it. It's okay, you know, but it's not Greer. This is not this is not a man who is indecisive. This is not a man who waits for someone else to make the decision. So when he doesn't, you better have a damn good reason why. And you know, I don't. It it, it seemed out of character for Greer. I think Greer would have been the first person to say, "Suck it up," you know. Well, and instead, yeah. he's having Colonel Young tell him that. Well, I mean, characters are allowed to grow and they are allowed to change. I think the issue for us, though, is that we didn't watch the midpoint between Greer being one way and now being mm. this other way. We didn't mm. get to see that growth. Yeah. It wasn't shown to us. It's being told to us. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, that's been a bad habit that I've seen mm-hmm. in the two years of this series mm-hmm. is a lot of telling on Not the moment that, that we would have been the most interested mm-hmm. in. Greer did need to grow. I mean, that's been that's been something that, that's been known since the front. He can't stay. He's going through this extraordinary experience as well as everybody else. Of course, it's going to affect him. He he has to be allowed to grow. Mm-hmm. But you know, we didn't get to go on that journey with him, so yeah. we don't buy it. That I think is the problem. I did like Varro very much in this episode. I liked how he. What had put aside everything that had happened between the Lucian Alliance and Earth, and he was just focused on saving people 
and he wasn't really I never felt like he was really just trying to prove anything he was just trying to do what needed to be done mm -hmm. and I, I like that in his character and the actor I'm looking forward to meeting the actor at Timegate yes. at the end of May he'll be appearing there so uh, he's a good actor Elena Huffman um, according to Joe Malazzi's blog there were a whole bunch of flashback scenes and some of them I believe were shot where we were going to get insight into her childhood uh, really? Regard, yes. Uh, if you go over to Joe Malazzi's blog, he even has the script pages up where wow. you uh, see uh, some of her, her relationship with her father. With her father. Okay. Yes. Uh, how to build okay. a fire, what it means to be in the military. Some inter very insightful stuff that, that Isn't that interesting? There. Yes. Hmm. Yes. So you have I, to ask I, yourself, how would that have improved the episode <laughs> well, if I dare say the, yeah well apparently the episode was originally when when uh, Eminem as I like to call him Joe Malazzi and Paul Mully first came up with the idea the original thought was going to be that uh, it was going to be a wicked sandstorm and they had contacted John Scalzi the science science fiction advisor for suggestions on how to make it a deathly sandstorm and Scalzi had suggested making the sand be like like tiny little razor blades where mm -hmm. it was that vicious and it would cut through and uh, it was, was Brad Wright who decided instead that it would be this sentient beast trying to protect its nest but let's talk about the B plot for a minute with those stations. Well I want to go back to Varro really quick I, I'd like to have to add my two cents about that this uh, is th this is a character that uh, I've been enjoying watching develop over the course of this season and it's clear that they they tried to pl I never believed that that the character would turn against the other destineers the the Icarus personnel I I honestly thought that he was uh, perhaps really the only one who was really trying to integrate himself with uh, the crew I mean we saw that as far back as you know season one and it, the show kind of asks you to think to yourself, well, maybe what if he's not being completely honest? You know, because there's a lot of times where they come to him like, well, you didn't give us this information. He's like, I never knew this information. Uh, and this episode really solidifies him as, you know, really trying to be a member of the team. And he's not hiding anything, uh, as evidenced by the decision at the end of the episode to, to free him of all uh, security personnel who have been monitoring him. I kind of felt that it was, you know, going to be that the entire time, but I, at least I'm glad that we got to see it because Mike Dopood's an excellent actor and he really got to play that very well. Uh, so now we have, we finally have a, f a full-fledged member of the Lucian Alliance. Um, um, now we have a member of the Lucian Alliance as a fully-fledged member of uh, this mission. So that's kind of nice moving forward for the three episodes that we have left. Yes. <laughs> so. No, I agree. What, what did you think of uh, Colonel Young coming in on uh, Varro and TJ getting closer? Well, they're just reminding us that, that there is this triangle happening. That's, that's exactly what that, that scene was for. They're, they're letting us know that uh, the relationship with, between Young and TJ, in terms of in, in Young's mind, is not over. So we'll, we'll see if they explore that anymore near the end of the season well, I you doubt know, it I, wait wait let's stop for a second here you think that that it's still a triangle yeah I do I think that he uh, I, I think that he cares about her very much interesting again Joe Malazzi and I I would agree from the way the acting was performed but Joe Malazzi points out is that the intention in that scene by the body language that was used by it's Lee over. Ferreira is that he recognizes that it's over that Varro is better for TJ than he'll ever be 
Isn't then, that interesting? Well, they didn't convey that to me. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I got that impression too. I got that sense of that Farrar, that Colonel Young recognizes that he can't be for TJ what TJ wants. I mean, TJ mm. definitely approached him several times when she was pregnant, when the baby yeah. was lost, yeah. and he just he tried to talk with him. Yeah, that's right, and he just blocked it off. Well, you know, that could have been solved really quickly, and I, I'm a big fan of showing and not telling, but in this case, you know, because I completely missed that, it would have been nice, you know, after a little bit of a pause, after Varro leaves, where he's staring at TJ, if he would have just said, I'm happy for you, and he left. I agree. So you should be writing for the series. <laughs> no, thank you. No way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's... But you know what? There's there's a certain amount of, of showing and telling in this episode combined, and I think it has led to perhaps the worst line in all of SGU history in this episode, where I was like, you did not just say that. I couldn't believe it, where personnel are dra- dragged off into the woods, and uh, they've, already, they've already killed one of the creatures, and then... There's there's another person dragged off in one direction, and clear across to the other side of the area, there's another person dragged off in another direction, and Greer and and Varro are standing there, and Varro says, "There's more than one of them," and I'm like, "Why did you say that? Of course I know there's more than freaking one of them. I just saw them dragged away. I can't believe you just said that. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Are you really saying to me?" That you, that you being whoever's producing the, on the other side of the show, that I needed to be told that I just saw these two people get dragged off in, the, in two different friggin' directions. Uh. And, you know, had Jack O'Neill been standing there, there would have been only one word that he would have said. Damn. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know? I and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I you've got to be kidding me. You just... Man! No, I agree. There was now, a lot am I of... taking that all out of proportion with the frustration, or is that just like, come on, guys, we don't need to hear that? Yeah, I uh, the, the the episode was strangely out of balance for me, um, and I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I felt like quite actually, I felt like the effort on showing and not telling and intrigue was put more into the B plot than it was put to the A plot. I felt mm. like the A plot. Was a, str- was a struggle to write, whereas the B-plot and the C-plot, mm-hmm. uh, I felt like the writer had more fun writing it. Mm-hmm. And the director, Eli, yeah, and, Eli and, and Rush playing with Eli and with Brody and yeah. the Volker storyline, I just felt like there was um, more... Not just playfulness, but sincerity in the B and C plot line. Well, before we move on to the B and C plots, let's wrap up, wrap up the A plot. It, it, this creature sees the fire in the cave and by this recognizes that it, that its prey is intelligent because all, all beforehand before it sees it sees the fire it was going to eat them because mm-hmm. we see bones of previous kills it sees the weapons and it doesn't recognize intelligence it sees that these people are clothed and it doesn't recognize the intelligence but it sees that we can make fire and somehow determines okay these creatures are intelligent i guess i won't eat them Am I missing something? Yeah. No, that's it. The only point I have to make there is that they realize this creature is sentient, so they back, so they back off, and Greer backs off. And the okay. creature recognizes that they're sentient, and it backs off. Right. right. But then they go ahead, and Greer shoots one of those rainbow-colored deer-like yeah. things. How does he know yeah. that wasn't sentient? 
I this this is an aspect of the episode that is very weak. Um, and I'm afraid the, so. In the end, it leaves me very perplexed, and and I have I have a hard time saying that because you know I've loved SGU, I've loved pretty much every aspect of it, and this is a weak this is a weak part of this show. Um, and it's a it's an extremely significant part of the show, which is which is what is really frustrating. It asks you it asks you to buy an awful lot, and um, my my purse is not that uh, not that full. <laughs> so at this at that point in the episode, so yeah, um, let's just move on to the B plot, shall we? So we go... Stasis Chambers. Yes. Stasis Chambers. What a beautiful set. Gorgeous Wasn't that set. a gorgeous set? Um, I'm I'm yes. sad that it's been introduced at this point in the series because the show's been canceled. <laughs> I'm like, man, this this set could not have been cheap to build. We find this area aboard the ship. I didn't count the number of chambers, but there are a number of them, at least like ten chambers of this of this type that we see in the episode. Now, when you and I talked earlier this week, you raised an issue of uh, of disappointment with there being stasis chambers on the ship at all. Yes, I did. I had some issues with it. I felt that, um, first off, I mean, this really brings us to a bigger question of Destiny appeared to have never had people on it. So if those stasis chambers were there, where were the bodies? Where were the ancients? What happened to them? Where were the people that had manned the Destiny? It's, yeah, and that's a very valid question. But I think what we're still supposed to take uh, as fact is what has been already established, that eventually the crew was supposed to gate to the ship, uh, the crew that was meant to go was supposed to gate to the ship once it got out to a certain amount of distance. That's why they did design the ninth chevron, uh, and the ancients simply got wrapped up in ascension, and, and never um, their interests their, moved on. But the the thing that I can think of that these stasis chambers are for that would be very relevant is there are large gaps between many of the galaxies where destiny runs out of energy and has to drift. And it cannot support its crew in the process. We have already, you know, had that concern. So it would be necessary at some point for the crew to go into stasis so that Destiny could brave that void and and reach the other end without expending all of its energy and keeping the crew alive. Because I don't think it would make it. The crew wouldn't make it. So in in those periods when it has a long journey between galaxies to travel, the crew can go into these stasis pods and survive. And then Destiny can wake them up when it reaches the next star in the next galaxy to to refuel itself. That's the, I, I don't know if that's true. That's the only thing that I can think of. No, it's a good point. I didn't think of it that way, that they had um, basically never gotten on board there at all. Um, It's it's a very good point. One of the issues we still have is in the timeline, how old is this? How old is Destiny? How long Mm -hmm. before them leaving? Well, how long before Ascension? How long before Atlantis went, went back to Pegasus, went to Pegasus? It's very hard to. I mean, you, you're with. The, you work on the Omnipedia. You yeah. work on the timeline. It's it's Where frustrating, you, you know. Yeah, yeah. There are, there are just some questions that that 
they that they introduce that we can't answer? Is it Creek Mountain or Cheyenne Mountain from the movie to the TV series? You know, do the do the chevrons you know suddenly glow red in the TV series when they were when they were flat gray in the movie? There are just some things that you cannot resolve, and you just do your best to work around it. And this is really one of those. We know the destiny is older than the ancient technology activation gene. It pred- all of its technology predates that technology, which makes it older than Atlantis, which makes it at least three million years old, probably more. That's just that's just what you do. That's how you that's how you deal with that with that continuity. We we know the destiny is at least three million years old, but yeah, I mean this this uh, this episode has uh, an interesting little um, uh, situation where Eli is trying to um, hide the fact that Brody has been encapsulated in one of these uh, stasis chambers. The stasis chambers work still. Um, Quite well, yes. <laughs> and it was pretty obvious to me from the beginning that Rush was punishing them because they weren't listening to him. Was it to you? Oh, I don't know. He might have, you know, he, he was smiling a few times. and I think Exactly. That, that he, I think he was just having fun. Mm-hmm. It was a good distraction. At Brody's expense. At Brody's expense and at Eli's expense. I mean, yeah. he, you know, he was, he, let's remember what happened in the last episode that you and I talked about. He, uh, mm-hmm. Eli had to lock up his girlfriend basically in quarantine. Mm-hmm. So how much of this was vindictive? How much of this was just the older brother basically, you know, fooling around with the guys? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I do, uh, wonder... I don't think it was malicious. No, no. But I, but yeah. I do wonder, moving into the C-plot just a little bit here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was Rush really trying to do with Volker? Was Rush really meaning what he said, or was he really trying to get Volker to get off his feet and get on his feet and and go after uh, go after Lisa Park? Well, Rush, what I'm hoping is the case is Rush knows more about Lisa than meets the eye, and not in like a strange way, but that he he knows what kind of person she is. And the fact of the matter is. As established in this episode, and one of the se- one of the episodes in season one, this girl's a player. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, of, she may be a smart cookie, but in terms of relationships, this person, this is not a nice person. She ha- she's playing several men at the same time. She's a bitch. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I but mean, let's she's... go back to Rush's intentions here for a moment. Okay. Was Rush, what was Rush doing? I mean, was Rush? Did Rush genuinely care about? Volker? Did he mean well? For to, was that mm, intentional? That's a good question. That's a fair question. I you don't know. know the answer. Rush may just simply be it. It may simply be that uh, he sees Volker running for the the prison fence of of bachelorhood, and he's tearing him back down so that the the status quo can return. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to take. The, I don't know how to take that. They, we've seen Rush talk with like Eli in this way, you know, about uh, when uh, when Gin had died. You know, he's being very frank with him. You know, he's trying to say, look, this is this is just the way it is. Uh, and Rush, this may be really Rush's opinion of Volker. Like, you're you're not going to be anything more than just the the friend whose uh, whose shoulder she'll cry on. And I think ultimately he's right. You know, because she's interested in someone else. Yeah, possibly, but I, it's it's hard to tell with Rush. He's very complex. I am much happier with Rush now than I was mm. a year ago, where he was very mm. Doctor Smith to me. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's yeah. we really don't know his intentions, and there are times. I mean, especially 
being able to be a voyeur when he was in that VR with mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the gal in seizure, mm-hmm. and we can see we could see that he and with his wife also we could see that he he can be sensitive, he can be genuine, he can yeah. be compassionate. Yeah, you know, yeah. Volker he is, is a, of Volker is a good guy who has yeah. basically done everything that's been asked of him. Yeah. Okay, so. Anything is possible, and that that is in itself is one of the reasons I'm sorry to see, I'm sorry to see the series end, because I would like to see what they intended for Rush. Mm. I'd also like to see what they intended for Young moving forward, mm. and that's just not going to happen. But it is fun to speculate. Uh, closing thoughts. Uh, it, I would give it a a B. I mean, the episode was it was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't. It's not the kind of episode I want to sit down and watch again. I'm glad I watched it. I'd like to see what they're going to do with those stasis pods if they'll come in handy at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before uh, before the show runs out, um, it's going to be interesting to see if they have um, they have anything left in that. I exactly. think uh, this is one of Andy Makita's best directed episodes. I think the cinematography was brilliant. It was. The, the visuals in the forest with the fog. Uh, there are some wide shots, and you see everyone, you know, in, in, in rows, just walking over the um, over the foliage, uh, are beautiful. Uh, there is some there is some stunning footage in this episode, and I went in rewatching the episode. Um, I I don't have uh, HD satellite reception, but uh, I have HD on iTunes, so when I download the episode, I get to see it really crisp on my computer, and I was I was just blown away by by some of the footage, and I must give props to Andy. Um, and uh, the director of photography for uh, for this show. It is fantastic. And Joel Goldsmith had some great cues uh, oh, near yes. the end of the episode w- where Ron is running. There are some... He has really just mopped up the floor this season, and this th- there are a couple cues in this episode that are fantastic, so I have to give my hat off to... I have to put, take my hat off to Joe on it. Um, but in terms of the st- uh, story, I think this is the weakest episode of the season. I, I appreciate what they were trying to do. I respect some of the choices that they made, particularly for Volk, for um, Varro, you know, giving that character, uh, freeing him of his shackles once and for all. But in the scope of the information that we have now, i.e., this is the last season, this definitely felt like filler, and it was very disappointing um, because there are three episodes left, and there's or four, and there's just, you know, I want more, and this is not what I want. In, the, in these last few hours of the series. No, unfortunately, they didn't have a crystal ball, but you're right no, about of course Joel, not. Yeah. Joel Goldsmith's music is just, as usual, he just continues to just improve with age. Not that he wasn't great to begin with, because I listen to his music, his scores all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Even back in the 90s, he was, re- with, he was doing some great stuff. I know. I know. So I'm... Hopeful that another project's going to happen for him. We're mm-hmm. going to continue to hear his work. Mm-hmm. So. I think I think he's already booked for a pilot, so we'll see. This is good. Listener mail. Hi, I'm Billy, and I'm from South Carolina. And I was calling to leave my thoughts on the latest Stargate Universe episode, Seizure. Um, all in all, I liked this episode a lot. I liked seeing Dr. McKay and Richard Woolsey again. Um... I really, um, I'm calling to actually answer a question that somebody on the podcast had asked before. Um, it was from the episode Alliances. 
it was mentioned that the bomb that was being used was an Aquadria bomb, which can only come from the planet Langarius since they only have access to Aquadria. So, that being said, now that we know that Langaria has at least had contact with the Alliance, do you think it's possible that they could have somehow gotten a hold of an Aquadria and used it against Earth to make that bomb? Um, I also have another comment. I really just wish they would have mentioned something about Atlantis in this episode with McKay. Um, would have been nice to get some maybe backstory on that or something. And it would have been nice if in the beginning of the episode when McKay was giving his briefing, if Jonas had been there at the briefing kind of advising the ambassador. Just as a little starting to get one beat. Hello, this is Mark from Metro Detroit. And um, I'm really, this time I'm actually calling about the episode Seizure. First of all, is I do have to thank the episode for me not hating Rodney McKay. Through the entire show of Atlantis, he was my least favorite character. I'm not going to go into details. Let's just say that when he's always right, his character is extremely uninteresting because you want him to be wrong. That's for me. But actually, I wanted to talk about the um, more of the end of the episode. Um, spoiler alert, um, yes, how the episode ended really left me with actually kind of a weird feeling. I did not actually know, uh, until I actually read your website and found out that was actually uh, that Stargate character, um, can't think of his name, Jonas Quinn, it really got me thinking, this is, if this show would not have ended, this was not going to be the last time we're going to see this planet, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure in the near future they would actually make a supply line. Like, if you think about it, they have not become enemies. They said that, hey, we're going to get back to men, but you're going to protect us from the Illusion Alliance. So there's still a trust there. You do not ask an enemy to protect you against another enemy. You ask a friend to do that. The relationship now is on rocky terms, but I think that is interesting that they still have a relationship. And this situation could have ended a lot worse. And even though it ended bad for both parties, it didn't end completely horrible. They still have an alliance of some kind, and I'm pretty sure that they're still going to look at the data and they're still going to, uh, and if the data is as good as they think it is, they'll probably proceed in the near future. I did find this episode really good. Hope to, he uh, hope to hear more of your podcast, and uh, can't wait to see more Stargate, and unfortunately the show did get canceled, but at least this back half of the season was great. Hey, Darren and David, this is Anthony calling from New Jersey. Um, I'm calling uh, about the recent episode seizure I just saw last night and um, I just thought that I was actually really surprised I was never really a big Atlantis um, fan I was really more into SG-1 but for some strange reason I was just like so delighted to see McKay I guess that's the word I'll use and, and Woolsey I guess and then the fact that the background was of Langara which reminded me of SG-1 I just thought that it, it reminded me of like the good old days of Stargate where, you know, it was, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Stargate Universe, but I always thought that, obviously, it's a much different show than what I was used to, and I think that might have been why it turned off a lot of fans. I think you guys would agree, but it just was a welcome change episode, and it was, like, a little more lighthearted, and I liked it a lot, and um, I wanted to ask you guys a question, because the episode, Telford um, asked McKay, you know, if they ever get a chance to be able to dial Destiny, 
if he'd be willing to go. I wanted to know if you think that that might have been the writers trying to foreshadow like something that the, that they were thinking about that they were thinking about incorporating into the into the show, either like this season or maybe for next season if they would have had another season, like maybe try to get either McKay or someone else from one of the previous shows onto the Destiny to like maybe bring up the ratings, have people watch because it might be their favorite character or whatever. Um, Diana, do you want to handle this? Well, I mean, I certainly agree with him about Langara reminding me, reminding me also of the good old days of mm-hmm. Stargate, and I think I mentioned that last week. It really reminded me. You know, it's possible that they were going to bring McKay on at some point or somebody else. Uh, we have, uh, right now, we have no way of knowing what the intention was. Mm, there's plenty of scientists on that on that show who do a great job. McKay, seem, McKay is more of a scene stealer. I mean, we know that. I think what they were establishing was that uh, what they were using that for was that Telford was was dissatisfied with Rush and wanted to get him out of there. Uh, I think that's what that was for. Possibly, or they could have planned to eventually do what they did with Atlantis, where it got to be a point where it was not such a big deal to go back and forth between the Milky Way and the galaxy. You know, anything is possible. Yes, they were trying to show, it was clear they were trying to show that Telford didn't like Rush. And as you and I discussed, in my mind, it also showed that Telford still had some sort of agenda in regards to Colonel mm-hmm. Young. You know, mm-hmm. so, I disagree with you on that, but yeah, yeah you're absolutely there, that is definitely a valid point that, yeah. th- that yeah. you can that you can take away from that. So, so I mean, yes, you know, start the Stargate writers have always been very good at leaving things open ended, starting these new threads that they can pick up later, and that's what they were doing there. Hi, this is Dana from Seattle. I am calling about the latest episode, Seizure. I have a big, big problem with it, and it's a franchise-wide gaping plot hole. Jonas Quinn? Where is he? They don't mention him at all. There's, if, if he still exists, then there's no reason for them to need to go to this scheming length to get into Langara. He was a major influence in their government, and if he's taken on some sort of SG-1-type role for Langara and is off exploring the universe, okay, maybe. But if that's the case, Jack would never go ahead with this plan knowing that he was invading his friend and ally and former teammate's home world. And what, is he just going to apologize later? He would never, ever give the go-ahead on that. And so... The fact that they never even mention him and, and he's, he's just not a force in the episode it is very upsetting and it sort of implies that he's dead, which that's even more upsetting. And why, why is there no attention paid to this and no explanation for him? Just that he'd been drummed out of his home world for some bizarro reason would have been enough, but just not mentioning him at all I I don't think it makes any sense. Otherwise, I did actually enjoy watching them invade. It was very entertaining, but it just didn't ring true. It wasn't right. We also have a few other uh, pieces of voicemail as well. Uh, we're going to go with Morgan, and then we're going to respond to Alex. Hey, guys. This is Morgan from the U.S., and I just listened to your podcast on Elias. And you discussed a little bit about the defense of Earth, and um, you mentioned that 
it was really weird how the cargo ship got through, and then you brought up how cargo ships have additionalized the demand for like the past year or so. Um, it just seems completely impossible to me that during that entire time there was not a single one of Earth's starships orbiting Earth. And even if we go with the idea that the weapons platform in Antarctica was destroyed, you have to remember that Atlantis is still on Earth. They have long-range sensors and their own defensive capabilities and weapons that they can use to protect Earth itself. Uh, you guys never brought up Atlantis, so that's why I decided to call in. But it just seems completely impossible to me that with all the ships that the Earth now has and Atlantis on Earth, that nobody would notice these ships coming and going from Earth all the time. Hey guys, my name is Alex from Chicago. I'm a big fan of your show, big fan of the franchise in general. Um, I just had a general question for you guys. Maybe it's something that you guys have thought about, maybe you haven't. Um, in the past couple episodes, it's, it's been kind of in the back, back of my mind, and that is, has the Stargate on Earth, mainly the SGC, been moved? Um, just, just I, they've I know they've been doing a lot with Homeworld Command in the SGU franchise, which is great. That's something we never got to see a whole lot of. But, uh, you know, I'll use the example of, uh, of, of jumping with the stones. They're always at Homeworld Command. The stones are always at Homeworld Command. They're not in at Cheyenne Mountain. And also, I think in Twin Destinies, when um, I'm just going to use uh, the, the Star Trek term, uh, when uh, Lou Diamond Phillips are... Uh, Telford Prime goes back to uh, to Earth through the Stargate when they're in the, in the sun. And I, I think there was a line of dialogue that they had already made contact and they know that uh, he was safe. So did he get back to Cheyenne Mountain or did he get back to Homeworld Command to, to touch base with them? I can't I can't imagine him jumping on a flight and flying from Cheyenne Mountain to, to D.C. for this. Uh, I guess the Hammond could beam him, but they really haven't been mentioning the Hammond doing a whole lot of beaming around just you know, like when Homeworld Command was attacked and everyone was stuck in uh, looking for the bomb and all that. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering if you guys had really thought about where exactly the, the Stargate is nowadays. Um, you can assume that uh, Atlantis is still in, in San Francisco. Um, and I know recently with, uh, I, can't, I, got, I can't remember the title, but the, the Atlantis crossover one with Woolsey and uh, McKay, you know, they're they're meeting the Langarian representative or Victor Garber, they're they're meeting him in D C and before any sort of diplomatic uh meeting would have taken place in the briefing room. Um so uh, the briefing room in the S G C. So that's what just makes me wonder is if 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 the Stargate is still in, in Cheyenne Mountain or not. Maybe they closed the facility to mirror the real life situation. So I don't know. Just something for you guys to think about. Uh keep doing what you're doing and uh yeah, have a good one. The, the- Alex, the, the thing with this is that, um, you know, the SGC has been, uh, has been well, for this year, struck. Uh, Homeworld Command was the SGC. It was the, the second floor of, of Cheyenne Mountain. So, you know, we can't, we can't show it. I think right now you can take that, uh, that the SGC uh, is still around uh, and that the Earth Stargate is still there. Now, if Atlantis was there, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, if Atlantis was on Earth incoming wormholes would go to Atlantis because that's a newer gate. Um, this has been talked about before. Diana? Well, I mean, David, you and I talk about this all the time. I know, we're pretty to... sick of it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think it's a very interesting Kidding. question, especially in SGU where there's been gating going on and then they're right afterwards at Homeworld, Homeworld Command in 
DC. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in my crazy little mind, I see Atlantis and cloaked hovering over the Pentagon. They're both about mm-hmm. the same shape, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So one one's could... five-sided, one's six-sided, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, but they're multi-sided, and I could see, <laughs> I could really see, I mean, it would make, what a great way to protect Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. But the yeah, question there was, has the Stargate been moved from the SGC? Has the, has the Egyptian gate been moved? Well, I think he also implies, though, how they're right away, they'll, they'll gate through and they'll be right at the Homeworld Command right afterwards. So I think I think it's a valid question. I don't know what the answer is. I hope we get to find out one day. Mm-hmm. Hi, this is Aaron from crazy Portland, Oregon. Um, just wanted to give some thoughts about Stargate Universe. And I'm a fan who's watched it from the beginning. In fact, I remember as a kid watching the movie and walking through Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe. It's kind of interesting how I, I'm one of those fans who, even though it was new and I think it was maybe poorly articulated exactly what the series was going to be that caused a lot of fans to to boycott before even trying it, that if um, if they would have gone with Stargate Universe instead of Atlantis, I think they actually would have increased Stargate's fan base because it has a lot of similarities with Battlestar Galactica. But um just wanted to ask a quick question on, I haven't heard any updates recently or in the last few podcasts that included the future of Stargate or Stargate... Um, Stargate Universe, or if anything, any talks had gone, or any movie, or or any news in that aspect, and I kind of wondered, since it's such a, um, I, I hold Stargate as a great series, and I, I love it, if maybe you could just give updates in the rest of the podcast so that there is no news, but um, I'm, I'm hoping for some sort of miracle to pull through. You know, I just watched, um, well, just watching Hope and Alliances and Twin Destinies and and The Hunt, and seeing all these, these new, amazing um, shows that are coming out. And then I'm looking and I'm hearing the fan base going down, which is surprising. And recently having the David Hewlett on, which is amazing, and, and hearing the the possibility of him coming on to Stargate Universe, um, that kind of, um, I, I wondered if um, the fan base would go up with that or if that at all would help generate a way for Stargate Universe to be saved. But uh, thanks for the great podcast. I listened to every single one of them. Love it. Um, Stargate fan as well. And thanks for your time. Well, Aaron, um uh, yeah, you. I think you probably have your answer by now. Brad gave it to us earlier uh, earlier today, this being Sunday. Um, if you haven't read it, read the uh, the news story on the GateWorld homepage that uh, Chad Colvin cooked up, which uh, reads, SGU continuation and other movies are dead for now. Yeah, it's a somber day for all of us here in Stargate land. So. He says SGU and movies are dead. That doesn't mean the franchise is dead. I'm Correct. sorry. I'm going to continue saying that. Beat that drum, everyone. girl. Sing it. Absolutely. I, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen. There could be a new series in a year or two. David Hewlett, will he do that or will he be on other things? There's no way to know. It was a treat to see him. Mm-hmm. I always enjoy watching Rod and McKay. And man, mm-hmm. you would hit it right away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's no way to know. We'll see. Yeah. Future's wide open. Exactly. This, this show is a profitable show. It is a um, a small candle, but it is a consistent candle nonetheless, and we'll just see where it goes. So, Diana, thank you so much for um, talking with us once again, for, for coming back on. Uh, you had family in town this weekend. You really didn't have to, and you did, and I appreciate it. David, I will so. always do anything I can to help you guys out. You know that. Yes. Thank you for yes. having me. You are always great, greatly welcomed. 
Um, so uh, this uh, coming April the 25th, uh, we will be talking about Common Descent, which airs uh, Monday night. Will have already been uh, aired by the time this uh, this show is published. And then May the second, we'll be talking about Epilogue, which is sure to shape up as being a um, a pretty interesting episode of uh, of Stargate Universe. I I saw some concept art from this a long time ago, and it looks kind of cool. And then May the 9th, we should be talking about Blockade, episode 219 of uh, Stargate Universe. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks to Russell once again for hammering this thing out. Give us a call on the hotline to share your comments on this news or anything else, or just to say hi. Let us know that you're out there. That number is 951-262-1647. You can leave us a voicemail day or night. It does not matter. You can also leave a a brief audio recording in uh, Darren's uh, inbox, MP3 format preferred but not mandatory, at webmaster at gateworld.net. You can also comment in the podcast feedback thread in GateWorld Forum and uh, comment under the show notes in the news uh, section. The show notes are launched on gateworld.net. Uh, in conjunction with every podcast. They're always there for you. They always have links and other uh, important bits of information. So share your pithy comments with us uh, in any of those locations. And uh, we're always uh, checking. Even Diana is checking to, uh, to to see what you guys are saying. So um, I know yes, that she we're has watching a number you. of... Yes, you have a number <laughs> of, of, of folks out there who uh, who comment after you, uh, after you tune in. You're quite the catch. So Uh-oh. thank you for... Uh, Thank you for uh, for chilling. Well, I am so. a fan of this franchise, and I am very grateful to GateWorld on, in many levels, besides being a fan, just in my writing, it, that Omnipedia is just mm-hmm. to die for. So thank you, and I the fans are great, too. I, they're just... They're, it, it is an extraordinary franchise with people from so many walks of life, equally balanced gender-wise, which I love. Star Trek has never was never really like that, and is a young girl growing up and mm. being like one of the only girls who loves Star Trek. Mm. I love being part of another franchise that's science fiction that is just it's more balanced. It's very ubiquitous. Is, it's fantastic. It's just great. Old, young, black, yellow, green, blue, polka dot. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal franchise and that's why I say to you guys, please don't give up on the franchise. The books are coming out. Franchise is not dead. The franchise yeah. is not dead. It's just going to take a nap, a well-needed nap. Yeah, the live-action elements, absolutely. Exactly. So, from GateWorld, this is David. And this is Diana. And we'll be talking with you very soon for another installment of the GateWorld Podcast.